Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Greetings and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined as always by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, man? We are, we're into the second round. We're into the conference semifinals. Yeah, we're, we're into it with exactly one game played in every series. I feel like it's actually pretty rare to get that kind of symmetry with all yeah. the series going on at once. It helps. Usually... it helps when no first round series went the distance. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's sort of what enabled this. And also the pretty quick turnaround, I guess, for Memphis, where they were the last first round team to finish things off and then immediately i mean i got a one day break and then and they had to go from the friday night to the sunday afternoon too just a dreaded dreaded schedule for the higher seed at home too like not not advantageous whatsoever yeah so basically we're gonna hit on all four of those game ones and talk about those matchups how they've looked in the very early stages uh, of those second round series and how they might look going forward so why don't we just start there with Memphis Golden State because I do think for a number of reasons that was the most interesting game one and you know to that point about Memphis getting kind of a tough draw and having to turn it around that quickly I do wonder I don't know actually did you did you think that played a part in them losing that game did they did it feel like they ran out of gas at the end? I mean, they made actually quite a strong push in the fourth quarter to grab the lead back after Golden State had gone up, what, eight points, ten points yep. in the fourth? It didn't seem to me like an issue of them sort of wearing down, but a lot of really interesting tactical stuff, I thought. And I don't know. I mean, just as a, a broad strokes takeaway, I don't want to make any sweeping conclusions after one game and I think Memphis showed a lot of things that made me feel like this could be a long and competitive series but also it just kind of felt like that was one they had to have yeah like to, to let that one slip away I mean they were up big in the first half Draymond gets ejected it was back and forth pretty much the whole second half but the Grizz made that that big push to get the lead back in the fourth quarter. They hit 16 threes in the game, which for this Memphis team is quite rare. They got a monster Jaron Jackson performance, uh, 33 points in only 30 minutes, which only 30 minutes. I mean, he finished with three fouls. You can't blame the foul trouble for him only playing 30 minutes in that game. Went six for nine from deep. And still, you know, the, the Grizzlies just couldn't quite, pull it out and now the Warriors have rested away 
home court advantage and Memphis is facing an absolute must win in game two. I mean, that's just tough. So what was your kind of biggest takeaway from that game, whether it was, you know, stylistic thing, a tactical thing, a more general takeaway? What what did you come away from? It's more of a general takeaway, but what I think stood out to me is, so I went into this series kind of unsure about whether either backcourt or group of perimeter players was equipped to defend the perimeter players on the opposing end. Because whether it's on paper or if you watch the way the teams have played this season, you could look at both teams and think perimeter defense-wise, especially if you're thinking about like the Warriors' death lineup, like in both teams having their best lineups out there, perimeter defense-wise, both teams could be shoddy, right? And have been shoddy for, for stretches of this season, much of this season. And I feel like for the Grizzlies to really have a chance in this series, obviously it's not the be-all end-all. There, there are a lot of other things, and we can talk about those as well. Um, that could keep the Grizzlies in this series and, you know, maybe even give them a chance at winning it. But for me, one of the bigger things was they have to be the team, not even just because they're like younger or more athletic. It's just, I think the way this series is mad, like if they could be the team that can defend the perimeter, that's a huge thing for them. What I was, I guess, surprised at as I started to watch this game is like, I I think the Warriors perimeter group is actually more equipped to handle the Grizzlies and vice versa. I mean, Gary Payton doesn't start, but he's obviously... Well, he did start. He started right. game one. He, do you think he'll start the whole series, though? Like, do you I think do. That, I think... I mean, yeah. that's a good okay, question, actually. Like, I, I thought it worked. I, I yeah. thought he gave them everything that they could have possibly asked out of him. And obviously, Jordan Poole had a monster game so, as well. So... You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, Poole had a monster game. He should start. Or on the other hand, you could say Poole came off the bench. He had a monster game. Maybe this works. What I was going to get at with the Peyton thing was like Peyton isn't, he's not part of their best five, right? But I think that maybe, you know what, in this this matchup, in this matchup, he might be, I mean, he closed that game and I thought he was instrumental in them getting the win and like, okay, then you think, if Draymond is there, right? That, who who comes out of that lineup? And I think it could be situational, and they could go offense defense. But but th- this is where I was going with it was Payne's not a usual starter for this team when they're healthy. And I guess we can argue, like not even argue, just talk about whether he's in their best five in this matchup. But what I was going to say is he obviously I knew could defend the perimeter. Like he's a great defensive player, but I just thought on the whole, it was an area the Grizzlies might have the advantage in. And and that's one of my general takeaways from, I know it was only one game, but watching this game was like, no, I think if one of these group of perimeter players is actually going to be able to do anything defensively against the guys lining up on the other side, I think I might actually trust the Warriors more. And a lot of it is Gary Payton, but parts of it were like, I thought Steph competed well defensively, which is something we've seen from him in the playoffs in the past. I thought Jaw was awful again at the point of attack defensively on the other side. We know, like, Bain, I thought, improved as a defender this season, but I I don't trust him defensively yet, like, night in, night out. Yeah, yeah. and, and then, this, but, this was a bad defensive game for him, too. Like, his it was, navigation it was terrible. In, this, in this game was particularly and bad. And then Dylan Brooks, who, as much as we, we joke around about his trigger-happy offense and, and whether he deserves that green light or not, even though he gives it to himself, the one thing the guy can do is defend the perimeter, but he ends up in foul trouble. And 
I'm just watching this game unfold and realizing like, man, like I think the Warriors are going to be able to kind of win the perimeter battle in this series. And if that's the case, then it goes to something I wrote about in our series previews, which was that the Grizzlies have to take advantage of their size, quote unquote, advantage. I know like not just because, you know, their big man is taller than Draymond, but just generally stylistically, we've talked so much this season about the way the Grizzlies play and how much they leverage the offensive glass, right? And how crashing the offensive glass and creating second chance opportunities and essentially winning the possession battle or the shots attempted battle has helped them overcome a mediocre half court offense. And then you look at this game and I think they finished equal in offensive rebounds. Um, whether you want to say the the Warriors did a good job boxing out and like staying committed to their own game plan of keeping the Grizzlies off the offensive glass, whether you want to attribute it maybe to some tired legs on the Grizzlies part because it had only been what 36 hours since they're, you know, a really emotional and taxing series against the Timberwolves ended. I don't know, but like they have to not even just win the size battle. Like they need to take advantage of, whether you want to call it a size advantage, an energy advantage on the glass, something, but like something has to give there because they can't, they can't be not having the advantage there and also just getting torn apart on the perimeter. You know, like if, if Steph is outclassing jaw and Bane with defensive effort, this thing's a wrap. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I see what you're saying and I, it's worth point. Like the, the Grizzlies outshot the Warriors from three in that game one, and that's not going to happen probably most of the time in this series. And the Warriors outscored the Grizzlies in the paint in that game, which I think you could say that, you know, maybe that actually is where where it hinges because maybe that that might feel more sustainable to me, to your point, like just watching the game from a process perspective. And... There's a, a few things you said that I want to hit on. I mean, the, the jaw defense point is a really important one because that's nothing new. And I thought the Warriors did a really good job of attacking him. Like, not just attacking him on ball, like having Poole go at him, roast him one-on-one, which did happen a couple of times, but like attacking him off ball too with just like the constant weak side motion and the relocation. Like, he got lost in the sauce a lot just lost track of Jordan Poole, lost track of Steph, gave up wide open threes. And that's, as I said, it's a huge issue. And as far as, you know, the point about Gary Payton II, who I think is going to have a really important role to play in this series in terms of his defense on Ja, the, the way that the Grizzlies would theoretically be able to play him out of this series or, or play down his role in the series is by making him a non-factor on offense. And what made him a factor on offense was that Jaw was guarding him and they didn't want to switch Jaw onto Steph. So what did the Warriors do? They just turned GP2 into a screen and roll guy. Like they didn't want to switch Jaw, so they're bringing him up, Peyton screening, two on the ball, and Gary Payton II is rolling into these four on threes. It's the Bruce Brown playbook. It is, but like he is like more dynamic than Bruce right. Brown. I mean, Bruce Brown has that floater, which makes him a good short roll finisher. But I thought, you know, just with the ball in his hands, I feel like he's a little bit more dynamic, man. I, th- I thought he made some really nice short roll I think he's passes. more of a natural, gu- almost guard in a way, 
than than Brown is in those situations, right? But he is also just more athletic. So like you, that that dunk that he had on Desmond Bain's head was out of a four on three, where like that's something that he can do that Bruce Brown can't. Like he can roll all the way to the rim, mm-hmm. uh, or be a playmaker in those scenarios. So that's that's how they kept him viable offensively and that's that goes into the issue with John and, and his defensive limitations and what that hamstrings the Grizzlies or shoehorns them into having to do so I think that's important and then to the point about Brooks I, I disagree I think he was great defensively in that game especially on Steph like no I, no I, I'm saying he's their best perimeter defender what I said is he ended up in foul trouble yeah I mean he did it's all like he's always towing that line. Like that right. just is the Dylan Brooks experience. Right. And you need the physicality from no, him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I, like, I have no complaints with the way he played. I'm just saying yeah. it ended up hampering them because he couldn't play as much as they needed him to, but otherwise, right. yeah, he was great. And that's like it, their perimeter defense hinges on him. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's interesting to contrast. Like if we're talking about the unexpected way that it shook out in terms of like, the Grizzlies hitting all these threes and the Warriors scoring in the paint and the Grizzlies actually not really getting much in the paint. I think a lot of that was by design. If you look at like the Warriors defensive game plan, like jaw finished with 34, nine and 10, which is obviously a huge stat line. Yeah. How many possessions but, did he use though? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think a few things worth noting, only three free throw attempts took 11 threes. And again, that's by design, right? Like the Warriors game plan was we're going to play him with a huge gap. We're going to give him all the room in the world to shoot it from deep, duck way under screens, uh, play a deep drop, you know, or switch Draymond onto him in, in pick and roll. And if they were doing that, Draymond was still giving him a huge gap, right? So it functioned as a drop almost anyway. But, but the idea was just dare him to shoot. And he hit four of those 11 threes. So, Kudos to him because he continued to step into them with confidence and and he hit a bunch of them, but like the Warriors are going to live with that. And I think ultimately goading him into taking that many threes is a good process for them. And it's interesting because it's a totally different coverage than what he saw against Minnesota. Like Minnesota's hard hedging, like putting two on the ball against him in pick and roll all the time. And now he's seeing something obviously completely different. I think it's, it's too early maybe to say whether that's right or wrong, but what I do think it allowed the warriors to do was to keep Desmond Bain under wraps, which the wolves were very much not able to do because the warriors are playing those pick and rolls two on two, and they're not sending a ton of help jaws way, at least not until he gets below the free throw line. And, because of that, like they were mostly able to stay out of rotation and stay home on Bain, who, as we've previously discussed, is like the Grizzlies only reliable three point shooter. So I think generally, if they can limit Bain to five three point attempts, as they did in that game one, you know, he's not going to go one for five every time, but if they can limit his volume to that extent, I mean, you know, you're forcing the other unreliable grizzly shooters to beat you from deep. I, I feel like that puts them in a pretty good spot defensively. And, you know, even the threes that Bain did manage to get up were mostly, you know, they were all pretty well contested. Uh, one of them clay blocked because basically he stayed at home when Bain ghosted a screen in the pick and pop, which is something he does a lot. And like the warriors were clearly very prepared for it. So 
I think, you know, from that perspective, if you're, if you're lining up personnel versus personnel in terms of like who can be better at perimeter defense, I honestly don't know. Um, especially with Melton back in the Grizzlies rotation, which is maybe something we can hit on. But I just think in terms of the game planning and, and, and like who has more options, I guess, to, to slow down the other's backcourt, I think because, again, of like Jaws defense and the shooting limitations of the Grizzlies guards, it, it is still advantage Warriors in that respect. Yeah, Jaws scored 34 points, but used 35 possessions to do it. Bain, as you mentioned, was neutralized. And that like, okay, who's... I guess it, it would still be Steph, but I don't know. The, it was Steph's effort yesterday. Like I'd say, who do you think is really the Warriors' worst perimeter defender out of their rotation guys, like the guys they play? Poole? Yes. I think Poole looked better defensively yesterday than either of Ja or Bain. Like, the, the Warriors' worst perimeter defender right now, at least in this series, and I get it, it's one game, but even if you take the sample size of the season, I guess you maybe it would be advantage Bain then. But right now, I'd say the Warriors' worst perimeter defender in their rotation is better than like two or three of the Grizzlies perimeter guys, other than Brooks. And unfortunately he couldn't stay on the floor as much as they needed him to. It, it's just trouble for me, man. Like my question for you is, do you think the Grizzlies can compete in this series without exploiting the possession slash shot attempted advantage that comes from offensive rebounding? Cause the transition thing, like, Whatever, it's easy to sit up here and say, well, they got to get out and transi- transition, but it's not, it's easier said than done. You know, teams are generally balancing the floor better in the playoffs. I get the offensive glass is where I was really surprised. Like I said, they ended up with eight apiece percentages wise. The uh, Warriors were actually better. So do you think the, the Grizzlies can compete in this series if they don't win that possession? But if they're not cre- consistently creating a bunch more second chance opportunities. Uh, I think they can compete. Yeah. I don't know if they can win, but yes, I, I think they can compete. I think a couple things need to happen. One of those things is like, I just don't get why they're still starting Xavier Tillman. Like I get that Steven Adams, is he in health and safety now? Is that, is that what happened to him? I'm not, I know he got played off the court in the first round. And to no, honest, I know, but I think there's like actually a reason that he's not playing now. It might be health and safety. I'm drawing a blank, but basically... I don't think that's even an option if they want to play big and like reinsert him into their rotation right now. But I'm still wondering why not just start Jaron at center? Like what advantage is Xavier Tillman giving you when the Warriors are starting Draymond at the five? This drives me nuts with coaches. And it's not a Taylor Jenkins thing. Like a lot of coaches do, but it drives me nuts when coaches have... um, I, I don't know if you want to call it a preferred style for their starting lineups, uh, a method to the madness. But if you look at the the way minutes are allocated on the Grizzlies, especially down the stretch of the season and in the playoffs so far, and you look at the lineup that they use the most, it is very clear that Taylor Jenkins believes his best lineup is with Clark and Jackson on the court together. And yet... He will not start those guys together. And again, it's not just a Jenkins thing. Like, coaches do this all the time. And it boggles my goddamn mind. Like, I I don't understand it. Like, what is the point of it? Is it some fear of, like, rhythm and, like, well, yeah, that's my favorite lineup. Or, like, this is the combination I like. But I like getting it to it in a different way, not starting with it. I'm not sure about the rhythm. Like, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe that's above my head. I, But it boggles my mind that this happens 
every year with a bunch of different teams and a bunch of different coaches, a lot of whom I like and think are good coaches. Like, what is the purpose of it? To your point, what what is what is even the advantage of that lineup in this series, especially? Other than just to say, well, that's our starting lineup, one of Tillman and Adams, and that's what we're going to do. And even if it means we'll do it for two and a half minutes to start the first and third quarters, that's what we're going to do. Why? Like, those are five minutes lost. Yeah, and I think Tillman wound up playing 13 minutes in that game, and they were a minus 10 in those 13 right. minutes. It's like, that's that could be the game right there. And, you know, that's not a guarantee that they, they would have won those minutes without Tillman on the floor, but it's just, I think there are pretty sensible, logical reasons that you can look at for why it doesn't make sense to play him in this matchup. And and like, yeah, he, he got cooked in pick and roll a few times in this game, but basically every big is going to get cooked by the Warriors a few times a game. I think the bigger issue is he just garners zero respect on offense, and it makes it really hard for the Grizzlies to actually run clean sets because the defense is mostly just going to ignore him and he can't really make them pay when he catches the ball in space. So the Grizzlies options are either they involve him in an action and it's two on the ball without a really legit release valve or, you know, they use someone else to screen and Tillman is playing in the dunker spot and his defender is just waiting in the paint to blow that action up. And the other thing it does is it gives Draymond like an ideal defensive assignment that just unleashes him as a helper and a switch guy. Whereas I think at least when you force Draymond to guard Jaron, not only can he not help as freely off of the ball, but in pick and roll, I think the Warriors have to be at least a little bit warier of switching because Jaron can actually do damage on the back end of that switch. So it's just... It, there was like a, I think a big trickle down effect there where it, it, so many of these things are connected in so many different ways. Like you think about the Warriors defensive strategy loading up on Jaws drives and doing the deep drop thing and pick and roll and just making sure that he's not getting anything easy going downhill, going to the rim. Like the, the Jaw and Jaron pick and pop game is something that can be like a pretty good counter to that coverage. Like that's that's what is unlocked when Jaron is playing center and it's really hard to execute that when Tillman is also on the floor. So, uh, and to your point, you know, about, about Jaron and Brandon Clark being like their ideal front court, uh, 101 minutes in the postseason so far with those two guys on the floor together, the Grizzlies are a plus 51 and in 78 minutes with Jaron on the floor and Clark off the floor, they're a minus 30. So I do think those guys playing together is something we should see more of. Uh, you get, you know, the benefit of Jaron's spacing with Clark's roll gravity and interior finishing, and you get like a, just a ton of collective rim protection with both of them out there. So um, I just think in terms of versatility at both ends, like that's something they should lean into, especially if Jaron is going to stay out of foul trouble, which he did in game one. And, and like I said, the jaw, Bain, Brooks, Clark Jackson lineup has been their most used lineup in the playoffs. Do you know how much a, a coach must like a lineup to consistently give that quintet the most minutes together, despite the fact they don't start together? Like it's hard for one lineup to be a team's most used lineup when it's not started together every half. This lineup is, which again, to my point means Jenkins clearly loves it. Started. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not only your pet lineup, it's also your best lineup. So start, stop putting yourself behind the eight ball against a just 
ridiculously good Warriors team. This ain't the Wolves anymore. Also, yeah, one just one last enough. note on the on the Draymond ejection, just because I think it's hilarious. But the well, the foul is not hilarious. It could have been really dangerous. But I think <laughs> it's hilarious to me how just giving some like indication that you're trying to stop a guy's fall or like checking on him after you almost caused just grave injury to him can mask how bad a foul is. And I'll like, I'll be honest, even me in real time, when you can kind of tell that like Draymond, like after freaking pulling him down by the collar in midair also tries to like cushion his fall and then checks on him. Even me in real time was like, that might just be a flagrant one because like, you know, he didn't mean to. And then you see the replay and it's like, holy, no, that's gotta be a flagrant too. So I don't know. I just think it's hilarious that, a foul, even in real time, it really can be papered over if you just show some sort of remorse. Care, right? Not yeah. even yeah, remorse and or care on the way down after you became the reason that player was sent on the way down from midair. Yeah, it's Hor- also like horrifically- if you think about it, like Draymond's explanation that I mean, I actually do believe that heat of the moment, like it's happening very fast. You, you want to try and break the guy's fall, you reach up and just grab onto something. But like, the, like if you're trying to break a guy's fall, why would you pull down on his jersey? I think I think it did happen very fast. But I think the way the decision-making happened in that fast moment was, I'm going to foul the shit out of him. I'm going to yank him down. Oh, shit, this is going to be bad. I'm Let me stop this. So, right. yeah, do I think he tried to save it in the end? Yes, but in that quick decision-making a split second earlier, I think he was, there was some malice behind it. I mean, regardless, I thought that the flagrant two was warranted. Yeah. And, you know, just, I guess one last quick point on this game related to that. I thought Kevon Looney was great. Like he came in. He's come up big for the Warriors time and time again. Really underappreciated player. Like I think Zach Lowe calls him the, like the least interesting player in the entire NBA and I totally get that but uh, he's just been rock solid and you know in terms of the Warriors game plan against Ja dude Looney in a drop was really effective corralling him and deterring him at the basket and you know they without Draymond like they needed sort of a different trigger man at the offensive end to run some of their post split action and and like the dribble handoff stuff and he did that pretty effectively as well. So shouts to Gavon Looney and I mentioned Melton briefly at the top as well. I think really good to see him back in the Grizzlies rotation and I think that's a hundred percent a necessary adjustment. Like he he was needed in this matchup. You're talking about the perimeter defense perimeter of the defense, two teams. Yeah. They need Melton, man. And you know, obviously the Warriors being a much more guard-oriented team than Minnesota necessitated him being back. And they got huge minutes from him. You know, whether it was on ball against Steph or Poole in spots or just in help. Like, he had a wicked help side block on a Steph Curry floater. And he managed to basically block it to himself. And then he took it the other way in transition and threw it up to Jaw for an alley-oop. Um, he did get back cut by Poole, I think, a couple of times where he was like, he just got burned for top blocking, basically. And that'll happen. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I thought his defense was was really good. And the Grizzlies basically just need him to be assertive offensively because he's, he's going to be out there with like their transitional groups where they need some offensive punch. 
And I feel like the passivity and shooting hesitance was what got him banished to the fringes of the rotation. So it was really good to see him being super decisive, you know, making those, those shoot or drive or pass decisions really quickly and without hesitation. So I hope we see more of that from him because he's going to be a really important figure for Memphis. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like it could go either way when a guy loses his spot in the rotation like that. And for that reason, because he's not being aggressive enough or uh, he's deferring too much, the passivity. I think either when he gets back in the rotation, he could play scared in a way or like scared of the quick hook from the coach. Or I find sometimes a guy that he gets banished to the bench like that. And then when he gets his opportunity again, it's almost there's like a carefreeness to it because it's like, well, I've already been benched. You know what I mean? He's not like playing to lose a spot as much anymore. And I thought Melton was the good side of that equation yesterday where he seemed to approach it like, you know, he he had already lost a spot in his rotation for that reason. Might as well just not play scared now and and roll. And and like you said, he's needed in this in this series and in this matchup. Yeah. So uh, hopefully for his sake and for the Grizzlies' sake, he continues to give him those kinds of minutes. Where do you want to okay. go next? Um, wh- where do you want to go next? Like we, 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 we burned a ton of time talking about that one. And like I said, it was the, it was the most interesting to me. So I'm fine with that. We'll, right. we'll try and breeze through the other ones a little quicker, but, uh, yeah, give us the second most interesting one. Uh, well, in let's go mind. Phoenix, Dallas, because we had done an Eastern conference preview. Um, and we hadn't actually done for the West two series yet. So let's start this episode with both, uh, West first round series. It's not a preview because the game's been played, but we can talk about them. We hadn't talked about them yet. So here's what I found really interesting about, uh, not even interesting because it's what I expected, but about this uh, game one. When I wrote about the West second round, I wrote about how I was curious to see whether Dallas could even come close to going all in on math, basically on a math advantage the same way they did and it played out against Utah. So the Mavs Jazz series was actually a matchup of the two teams that finished the regular season one and two in three-point made differential between them and their opponents. So for the Mavs to dominate the three-point line the way they did against the team that was number two in that regard and number one in three-point attempt rate, I thought was pretty shocking. The numbers, they shot 37% on their threes in the first round, but it's more so that they attempted 41.8 per game in those six games against Utah. More than half of their shots, 51.8% of their attempts came from deep. They took 72 more than Utah in that series and outscored them 279 to 147 behind the arc. Now, against a team like Phoenix, who is much better, you'd figure like for the Mavs to stay in it, they would need that same kind of math advantage. Big problem there is obviously... The Suns' defense uh, is much better, much tighter. Their perimeter defense is miles and miles and miles ahead of what the Jazz defense was. They are not going to be put into rotations the way the Jazz defense was. When they are, the, the few times you are going to get them into rotation, their rotations are much crisper. Their communication is way better. They are on a string in ways Utah, as we've talked at nauseum about, is not. And even their bigs are more mobile in the event they do need to put a fire out on the perimeter or play more aggressive. You know, their their options um, against Doncic between Bridges and Crowder, who was great in game one defensive, like, are much better than anything Utah was able to throw at them. And so their defense is just a lot harder to manipulate if you're trying to create kind of driving kick threes or corner threes, whatever the case may be. The, the Suns gave up the 10th fewest threes in the league this year, but they gave up the fourth fewest corner threes. So I was really interested to see 
is there a way Dallas can still kind of hunt those threes and play the math game in a series where they actually need it more because they're playing a, like a much more uh, superior opponent. And so game one, they end up taking 10 more than Phoenix and uh, making four more. But that to me is more just a stylistic thing because the Suns also aren't a three-point heavy team. They're actually a pretty three-point averse team. They've got good shooters, but they don't hunt it because between Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton, they can just absolutely murder you inside the arc. And so it, it kind of is like a double down thing where it's like, well, now it's like if you're Dallas, you're probably not going to do that great of a job of stopping Phoenix from just killing you inside. And you're going to have to play that math game even more. So I went into this thing and I, I'm really interested to see, can Dallas find a way to still create that barrage of threes and try to play this math game to stay in this series? And so far, the answer to me is they can't do it well enough. Like, did they take a lot of threes in this game? Yes, but it's, there's a big difference between, as I said, manipulating the defense to create threes the way they did in that Utah series where they're get, consistently getting into the paint. Luca's driving and kicking, as opposed to tonight, where, yeah, there was still some of that. Doncic, obviously, even against the great defense, he could still get in the paint here and there. But tonight, if you compare, like, the film from tonight to this, the, the uh, Mavs Jazz series, a lot more of their threes tonight were kind of, like, stand around, uh, swing it around the perimeter, just praying to find an open three, as opposed to manipulating a defense. And if that's going to continue for the rest of the series, as I predicted it would coming in, and as I think it will, that's where I just think the Mavs are toast. Because... I just don't see advantages for them to hunt. Like Luca put up what 42 or 45, 12 and eight tonight, but he also used 41 possessions. Like they had him working. And again, they had him working like that and he couldn't really manipulate them and create the shots for others that he usually would. And so long way of saying, I just don't think the Mavs can create the advantages. And I don't even think even, even though they're going to continue to try to find you know, those chances to take those barrage of threes and play the math game and hope it works out for them. And even though they actually shot it well from deep, they're just not going to create the, the same quality of three-point shots they did against Utah. And I don't think they can hang in this series unless they get some unbelievably unsustainable shooting luck where some of those kind of like stand it, swing it around the perimeter threes just go in. And early in this game, that, those actually were going in and they were staying close. And as those started to dry up, they found themselves, what, down by 21 at one point in the third? I know they only lost by seven, but it was not that close. Yeah, the math thing really does cut both ways, and this is something that I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about Bucks celtics But I think both these teams like to run a lot of Spain pick and roll. Like I thought it was funny just watching them just go up and down the court like running Spain pick and roll at each other. Uh, and I think the Suns are just a little better at defending that action. Like They're really connected in terms of like they'll have the the back screeners defender and the on-ball defender will just trade assignments and the guy who's defending the initial screen will go under to contain the role and they've contained the role and they've contained the pop and there's no advantage created. Like they're, it's just like clockwork with the way that they defend. I, I mean, the, the crazy thing about this game to me is I mainly thought they did a great job defending Luca and like you said, he's still... Yep. managed to get 45, 12, and 8. And the scoring on its own was obviously super impressive. I almost think that like him managing to get 8 assists was even more impressive because it did very much seem like what the Suns wanted to take away from him was the playmaking. Mm -hmm. And that changed a little bit in the second half or like, you know, down the stretch. They started shading more attention his way. But for a while, like they just... I mean, if it was a pick and roll, I, I 
actually can't remember a single instance in which they like blitzed or hedged a pick and roll. It was basically shallow drop or a straight switch every single time. Like they wanted to play it two on two and keep themselves out of rotation and generally did a very good job of that. And they were like, Luca's going to get his points, but we're not going to let him get everybody else going with his passing. And I thought that was an interesting approach. And then again, like, yeah, in the second half when he started, I mean, he was like taking Chris Paul into the post and like they started sending more doubles at him when he was in isolation and just rotating out of that and kind of like, let's try and make anybody else beat us at this point. But I, I do think him still finding ways of putting the Suns in rotation when they were sort of staunchly trying to avoid it or just like finding passing angles that you didn't think were necessarily there. I thought it was super impressive, but uh, you know, outside of Maxi Kleba, nobody else on the team really picked up any of the slack. And, you know, to your point about the Suns defense being a much different beast than the jazz defense, I feel like Jalen Brunson had a pretty rude awakening to that effect in this yeah. game. Cause he really went through it and struggled a lot with the Suns' size on the perimeter in a way that he very much did not against Utah. Like he wasn't getting any of those easy blow buys. Nothing was easy for him at the rim. Like it was a much different challenge. And then I feel like the the Suns were also kind of hunting him at the other end of the floor in a way that I don't think the jazz were really able to do. So, um, you know, look, Luca is incredible and his ability to problem solve basically any different defense and any coverage still gives the, the Mavs a chance to make this a series. But I, you know, the Suns are a better team. Like that's, yeah. they, they just are. And I think that d- despite Luca's brilliance and his problem solving abilities, the Suns have the horses to just like make his life difficult and, and their switchability, you know, the, the option to toggle through bridges Crowder. I mean, he was Luca sort of settled on Cam Johnson basically as the guy that he wanted to Dude, attack. I thought Cam Johnson had a solid defensive game. Yeah, look, Cam Johnson's no slouch, man. Like, he's the guy that you choose to attack because you don't really know where else to go. And, like, even Booker, man. Like, Booker did a hell of a job on Brunson in this game. Like, he is not some defensive soft spot that you can pick on. No, ask Rudy Gobert about that. He he was happy to let uh, Donovan Mitchell, the Utah Jazz, and the world know that Devin Booker has brought it defensively this year. And, like, yeah, for, I mean, obviously, I, I was it in that Tim McMahon story talking about how how Mitchell and his camp took that personally like took that as a yes a deliberate shot at donovan mitchell i mean there is no better illustration of that than the two series that we have just witnessed back to back like watching jalen brunson go up against donovan mitchell and now watching him go up against devin booker i mean that very much vindicates everything that rudy gobert was pointing to in making those comments now whether he actually should have made them publicly or not is a different story but uh he was 100 percent right so look i i I'm excited to see where the series goes from here, but you know, it's like bridges and Aiton defending a Luca pick and roll option. is just like a really nice luxury to have like the option to say, okay, like we can switch Aiton and we actually think that he's going to be okay. Like he's going to be fine on an Island uh, or we can let him drop and we're going to let bridges fight over top, which he does exceptionally well for a guy, his size really does a good job fighting to get back in front and can affect jo- like shots from behind that wingspan of his and again they can play it two on two right like they don't have to send extra defenders you know engage a third defender in that pick and roll action they can handle it two on two and feel pretty good about where they're at so 
you know, and then like the when it's Kleba out there playing the five for Dallas and they're using the pick and pop to try and break that, it's like the Suns will find another hiding spot for Aiton. Like they they stashed him on Josh Green instead and put Crowder on Kleba. Yeah. Then they switch it and the pick and pop goes bye-bye. Like they just have a lot of defensive options and I think they have more ways to hurt Dallas's defense than vice versa. Way but, more. Uh, you know, I guess one thing that's interesting, you mentioned them closing the gap at the end. They went super small with Finney Smith at the five in this sort of last ditch attempt at a comeback. And they, they did wind up closing the gap in the fourth quarter by doing that. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if that's something we see more of moving forward. Cause like they used that lineup against Utah because of course they did. Like <laughs> you go small against Utah. That's just what right. you do. Uh, but Aiton is the type of center who can break a lineup like that. So well, uh, I just wonder how much viability that actually has long-term in this series. I'm going to say uh, very little. You know, it was great to help them get back in the game. And I get it in like a, a case of desperation. You're going small. You're getting a little more dynamic offensively. You're, you're raining threes, you know, as I talked about, because you're just trying to survive and get closer. But you do that early in a game or for like a large stretch of a game against this team and against DeAndre Ayton, who can just feast on you inside. Like cooked. Okay, uh, let's leave that there. We'll take the break and we'll come back and try and quickly hit on the other two series. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash, we did the two West series. Let's do the East series a little bit quicker, because we're... we're butting up against our time limit already here but which of these uh was more interesting to you i mean i feel like <laughs> the answer is fairly obvious but where do you want to start interesting it's buck celtics yeah funny we'll get to six or seat but it's it's buck celtics man and here's what i think uh, is interesting is that when we were talking about this series last week and remember like i was saying I, like I'm at a point with Giannis where, you know, between thinking he's the best player on the planet, seeing what he did in last year's playoffs, knowing what he's capable of. Like, I I, I wanted to say I'm still taking the Bucks, even without Chris Middleton, because Giannis is that good. But then I like the the lack of shot creation this team has in general. Then you take Middleton away against this Boston defense. And I kind of saw it as like I learned my lesson a little bit in that Brooklyn Boston series where I was like, you know, Boston's the best, the better team in any way I can like analyze and measure it but I got to go with Brooklyn because I can't see KD and Kyrie like going out in the first round, both of them on the court. And it's like, well, now I learned my lesson. I'm not going to, you know, use that same method for Milwaukee. And then I'm watching that game and I'm thinking like, God damn it. What? I should have just gone with Milwaukee. Like I said, because I thought Giannis was that much better than everyone else. Now I know it's only one game. There's a lot of series to go. I think this is going to be a long series, but I did think it was interesting as an understatement how much Giannis he didn't even shoot like efficiency wise. He wasn't even that great. But Dude, the way let me, let me tell you what he did in terms of his individual offense. And this is 
not like a shot at Giannis. It's a way no, of saying, like I'm saying his efficiency was not good. His ability to impact the game in the way that he did while his individual offense floundered the way that he did is what makes Giannis so special. But thank you. Yeah. 24 points on 35 total used possessions. Disgusting. And yet he was that bad when it comes to individually, like his own offensive creation. And yet I'm watching that game thinking this guy is so much better at basketball than anyone else on the court in this series. And that includes a guy in Jason Tatum that we are having honest and deserving conversations about whether he has surpassed Kevin Durant. And I'm still looking at that in a game where Giannis wasn't even at his best saying he's so much better than everyone else. And if that's the case, yeah, absolutely. Milwaukee can win, not just the time, like this series for sure. In terms of other like interesting things, I know people have talked about or tweeted about it. It was one of the bigger talking points after that, the fact that Jason Tam and Jalen Brown could not get to their desired spots uh, in game one and the mid-range game kind of evaporated for them. And also the physicality of Milwaukee. In compare, I know everyone was using it as kind of like a way to pick more on the nets. And, you know, like this, is, this isn't, even when Giannis was like bumping up against some of these guys and they were flying off them, bouncing off them. And you saw a lot of people tweeting like they're realizing like this ain't KD. And I agree with all that. But it's also just like Giannis is a freak, pardon the pun, but literally a freak. And the Bucks are just such a physical team that I think it, yeah, sure. Are the Nets definitely not a physical team? Is KD maybe not that kind of punishing of a physical guy? Sure. But I think this is more just Milwaukee is that physically punishing and Giannis is especially. And I think the Celtics learned that very early and very often in game one. Jalen Brown said after the, I think his exact, his exact quote was, it felt like they punched us in the mouth or they punched us in the mouth, whatever he said. Like the Celtics are great. I do think there's going to be a long series. We both ended up picking Celtics in the end, but I, if I'm a if I'm a Bucks fan, if I'm in that locker room, I'm looking at at that game and thinking like, we got 34 on our side, and this is what he did in Game One when you know he scored 24 points on 35 possessions. Yeah, I like our chances. Okay, so I just want to say, and I understand why people are doing it, and it's like you know jokes greater than facts. Like we all know right. that, but to to point to what Giannis did to Celtics defenders and be like, oh, we're not playing the Nets anymore. Like, you can't handle the Bucks' physicality. Like, to point to what the Bucks did at the offensive end and say, right. like, that was the rude awakening the Celtics had is fucking stupid. Like, yeah. the Celtics held the Bucks to a 100 offensive rating in that yeah. game. They were phenomenal defensively. Yeah, and to, to, to our point, again... Giannis had 24 points on 35 possessions. It was not that end where the rude awakening really was. Right. So the rude awakening was at the Celtics who absolutely carved up the Nets to the tune of like 120 points per 100 possessions, had an 89 offensive rating in that game. And I think in talking about this series ahead of time, I very much focused on what the Celtics defense was going to be able to do to Milwaukee's offense. And pretty much all of that stuff bore out for me. Like I saw what I was expecting to see at that end of the floor, including the way that Giannis struggled with his individual offense. Now his playmaking was fantastic. And that's something we've talked about over the course of this season, like the evolution of Giannis as a passer and how important that was for him and as a way to, counter defenses that we're going to load up that we're going to build that wall against him you know 
obviously we see a lot of that in transition and it makes it harder to build that wall in transition because he can just sling passes to the corners and like he's very sharp with the with the transition playmaking but in the half court and this is something i wrote about toward the end of the season his evolution as a post passer and the ability in the half court when they can't get anything else going where the you know the pick and roll game is not there and especially with middleton out them being able to dump the ball into him in the post and know that like he's become a good enough post scorer now to draw two guys to the ball and he's become a good enough post passer to take advantage of those situations so that's huge but the story of this game was Milwaukee's defense the story of this game was that the Celtics hit 10 two-point field goals that is the second fewest in playoff history and really it was only eight like it was eight until garbage time uh, they shot 29% from two. And this is where we get into the, you know, the math thing that you were talking about with the, the Dallas Phoenix series and how it can cut both ways. They took 34 twos compared to 53s. And this is, this is exactly what the Bucks want. Like they're not worried about giving up a ton of threes. That's a win for them when it means that they completely lock down the middle of the floor. And it helps that the Celtics are not a great three-point shooting team. You know, if the Bucks can coax a not great three-point shooting team into taking 53s, that seems pretty good. Um, but it's not just about that, right? It's about, uh, like, the quality of two-point looks that the Celtics were getting because they're not getting anything easy at the rim. And it's also, it, it, I think it's just, like, really playing away from Boston's strengths offensively. You know, like, Tatum, even though he he has taken a lot of mid-range jumpers historically, like he's not ever been a particularly good mid-range shooter, and he doesn't really have the floater game either. So if he is getting run off the three-point line and can't get anything at the rim, there's not a ton of options for him as a scorer. Now, I think there were opportunities for him as a playmaker in that game, some of which he did take advantage of and his teammates just couldn't cash in and some of which he missed because he's not like an A plus playmaker. He's more of like a B to B plus playmaker at this point, I think. And I think, you know, the, the Celtics could have shot better. Like they could have finished better around the rim, but this is what the bucks do, man. And I think that is, that is the thing that I probably didn't pay enough attention to when I was trying to game this series out was like how hard it was going to be for Boston to score on Milwaukee in the half court. And, you know, Milwaukee comes out, there's no Middleton. So they roll out that three big lineup like they did in the bowl series with Portis, Giannis and Lopez all starting together. Just and, so much size, man. And Brooke Lopez, man, like I, <laughs> he's incredible. He's incredible. Dude, and I, th- this is why I wasn't worried at all about their defense in the playoffs, despite the fact that it had slipped to like 14th in the, in the regular season. With with Lopez there, they are so hard to score on. And I thought he was fantastic as a rim protector, looked super mobile. Holiday was awesome at both ends of the floor. I thought, you know, provided just enough self-creation and shot making on offense and then was just a menace at the point of attack on defense. A lot of that as the on-ball guy on Tatum. Wes Matthews also, I thought, did a great job on Tatum. And I think, you know, their strategy was like, we'll let anybody but Tatum beat us, basically. And, um, you know, the Celtics did knock down a few of those threes. But again, that's just that's a price that Milwaukee is willing to pay for the way that they can just shut off the rim entirely. I think I mentioned it late in the regular season, but 
like I was pretty flabbergasted by how good Brooke Lopez looked immediately upon rejoining the team. You know, this is like a veteran guy who's been around a long time. A lot of miles on that body, a lot of injuries, you know, pretty serious injuries and surgeries in his past. Coming off a, like a long title run, long playoff runs the last few years. I figured it was going to take some time, like once they got him back, for him to just get his legs back, you know? And he did not miss a beat. I mean, I guess, you know, credit to him, but also I probably credit to the Bucks too. Clearly, they made sure what, he was ready when he came back. And he came back, did not miss a beat, looked like he was treating like those regular season games he was back to ramp himself up and just hit it hard immediately. Their defense started looking really good as soon as he got back. And it's gone to another level in the playoffs, much like it did last year when not that he was coming back from injury, but last year their defense slid a bit in the regular season, the playoffs hit and, you know, they started defending the way we know they can. And look, Brooke Lopez, a healthy and, and seemingly rejuvenated Brooke Lopez on the court with Giannis Antetokounmpo and Drew Holiday. Good luck scoring against that team. And you have that defense night to night. And you just have Giannis out. Like, Giannis can do something. Like, he can do enough on the offensive end now where if you're going to defend the way they're capable of defending and you have Giannis, it's like, I'll just, I'll take my chances with that formula pretty much against any, at least against anyone in the East in a 4-7 series. So, I don't know. I don't want to waver here and be like, I've seen enough in one game. I'm changing my prediction as Bucks. But given the fact that I kind of, already thought it was possible and, and that he was just good enough to carry them and, and seeing how good their defense looked in that one game. Obviously, we'll, you know, we'll see how this thing plays out. But like I said a few minutes ago, if you're a Bucks fan, if you're in that locker room, you really got to be liking your chances right now. And not just because you won game one in Boston, but because of the way you won it. Yeah. Look, I'm going to stick with my prediction. Like, I really just want to wait and see kind of like of course. what what sort of adjustments are made, what game two looks like. Because I still think it's it's going to be super tough sledding for Milwaukee offensively. And, you know, as good as their defense is, they're going to be hard-pressed to replicate that kind of defensive mm-hmm. performance. But I do think that was an eye-opening game. And, you know, there's one more point about Brooke that I think is interesting. Like, I feel like the Bucks don't actually consider him a stretch big anymore. Like, that used to be the whole thing is that he was shooting all these threes and spacing the floor for Giannis. And then I think they realized the switch flipped actually in the finals last year, I think, where it had sort of been happening throughout the playoffs, but it was really exaggerated in the finals where the the Suns were treating him as a complete non-shooter. And so the Bucks were like, okay, like he's not garnering respect from three. He's shooting it okay. He's hitting like 30% of his threes, right. but he's not actually spacing the floor. Why don't we just like put him closer to the basket because he can actually be of more service to us offensively if we're doing that. And I thought they did the same thing in this game. Like he he took two threes, missed them both, but for the most part he was like playing in the post or he was in the dunker spot. And he went over of 2 from 3 and really didn't space the floor, but he grabbed four offensive rebounds, scored like three baskets on post-ups. So uh, I think that's, you know, that's a fine trade-off for them like would it be great if he was still shooting 37 percent from deep and still spacing the floor like yeah it would it would make Giannis's life a lot easier he also only did but, really did that for like a year year and a half yeah you know it looked like he was he had made this kind of mid-career or late career transformation on the offensive side but it, yeah it really only lasted a little over a year and since like the 2019 playoffs ish 
it's been like three years now since he's really been a reliable three-point shot maker. Taker is one thing, but yeah. maker. And to your point, they weren't respecting many more out there. So they, they definitely got the memo last year. Yeah, well, and it really helps that in that three big alignment, I mean, Bobby Portis actually can really stroke it from three. Like he yeah. is a legit stretch big. So that makes it work. Uh, okay, let's quickly hit on Heat Sixers and then get out of here. I mean... <sighs> This sucks, man. It, it sucks that Embiid just he just can't catch a break in the postseason, man. It, it's a real, real shame. But there is, I guess, some optimism that maybe he could be back by game three or four. And so now, I mean, that's a big difference, right? Like the difference between him being able to make it back in game three versus game four is like that could be the difference between being down two nothing or being down three nothing, and like down two nothing and bead comes back. I think they've still got a chance. Down three nothing, it's done. So I don't know. I mean, I guess for now we're thinking like, can the Sixers steal a game without Embiid? And I am inclined to say no, even though maybe it seemed at some points in that game one that like they could hang. I so think they, ultimately they they have lost the game in this series, right? Like this series has started because. Uh, so do you want to tell Doc Rivers? <laughs> Dude, Doc Rivers said after the game that oh. he is going to continue to start DeAndre Jordan, whether we like it or not. So I don't like it. <laughs> I don't think anyone in Philly does either. But can I just say, and you know, Wolfon, that I have no qualms about going on rants about players, coaches, executives, whatever, when I think criticism is deserved. You also know... I've actually, in the last couple of weeks, I don't know if defended is the right word, but in, uh, when the Raptors were you know, staging that mini comeback and had won a couple of games, I was tweeting about it, and I think I talked about it on this show, uh, that I actually didn't think it was really on Doc. I thought he had coached a coached good a series. Great series. No, that's what I'm saying. I, and even when they had made it 3-2, I was still saying, I think Doc has coached a good series. I don't think the last two games or anything Doc did. Even when he went on that kind of silly rant defending himself about the, the previous blown 3-1 leads and everyone was on. I mean, like, look, do I think it was funny and was it ridiculous that he went back 20 years to talk about it? Yes. But he was also just answering a question and I, I actually agreed with him that I, you know, the Orlando one was not really like anything on his end and even it, the, the Raptors getting it to 3-2 wasn't his fault and that the Clippers things were his fault. But like, at every turn, I actually felt like throughout that Rap Sixer series, I felt like I was actually kind of like defending Doc and being like, look, I, I've disagreed with Doc on a lot of things. I think he did make mistakes in the two Clippers blown series leads, but I'm also not going to use all that to pile on him now when I don't actually think he's really doing anything wrong, when I think he's coached a hell of a series, all this. Now, I'm like, dude, I, I feel like I, it was just wasted energy even defending you. You might have deserved defending in those moments, but I feel like it was wasted energy because how are you this arrogant about something that makes you look so dumb? Like, it makes no sense. We were just talking about the, you know, that Grizzlies lineup and Jenkins going with a lineup that doesn't work. This is like even worse to me because the level to which DeAndre Jordan does not look like an NBA rotation player anymore, like it's so drastic. And you are coaching a team with like, okay, yes, and beads out of lineup, but still, you traded for James Harden, you have Joel Embiid in his run, like you are coaching a team with legitimate, whether you want to say they have a title hope or not, but they have legitimate title aspirations. In the conference semifinals, you're down one nothing in the second round without your best player. You just watched the game in which DeAndre Jordan looked absolutely abysmal. You were minus 22 in 17 minutes with him, plus 8 
in the 31 minutes without him. And those numbers sometimes can lie. These numbers do not lie. That very much tells the story of this game. Even if the only arguments you could possibly possibly come up with for using DeAndre Jordan if you hadn't actually watched him play this year, even though you should have because you goddamn coached him the second half of the year. But the only argument you can come up with if you hadn't watched him this year was, well, he's a big body. I don't know. Stick him on Bam. He can clean the glass. Guess what? They got torched on the glass when he was in the game. Bam had a field day when DeAndre was in the game. Like There was literally no basketball explanation, no rhyme or reason to have DeAndre Jordan on the floor for a minute of this series, let alone as much as they did, let alone starting him. Then they start him. He's trash in the first half. Paul Reed was, you know, good enough. And then they still come out and start Jordan in the second half, which Doc was asked about after the game. So not only did he give the stupid quote about, you know, we're going to keep start, we like him and we're going to keep starting him, whether you like it or not. He also then went and said, like, the pl- it was the players, the players fully backed him and wanted that. And I think, um, like encourage him to like start DeAndre in the second half again because they wanted a more traditional big man. Like, so what are you trying to do? Like, are you preparing us right now that it was like semi the player's fault if and when this goes down? Like, you're the coach, dude. You're a veteran coach that likes to talk about why we, the media, should just trust your decisions because of all the experience you have. But now also it's like, oh, but by the way, this is also partly the player's fault. It's like, no, man, own it. You're making this ridiculous decision based on I don't need what is it friendship because he goes back way like way back with DeAndre the other thing doesn't make any sense look I get that in the NBA and pro sports there there is like a politics to it okay like I'm not naive to that I do understand sometimes in professional sports you know a guy gets playing time that maybe his play doesn't seem like it deserves because of the contract he's on or whatever like relationship with the front office or relationship with the star player like all these things that does not apply to this situation DeAndre Jordan is a late career washed big man who's not part of your future who's not on this big contract that you think you know the front off like I can't imagine Daryl Morey is sitting there thinking like come on man you gotta play DeAndre like he's, he's on a minimum contract like this, none of this makes any goddamn sense and then the audacity and the arrogance to sit there after that and say well we like him and we're gonna keep playing him whether you like it or not it's like yo you shouldn't give a shit what we like that's fair but you know what you should give a shit about Put, giving your team the best chance to win how are you as a guy that's been involved in basketball as long as you have played in the NBA, played the whole game your whole life, coached for the last two friggin' decades, watching that game and coming out of it thinking anything but I need to start, I'll file DeAndre Jordan's retirement papers for him. That's the only thing you should be thinking after that game if you're really his friend. Yeah, I mean, look, I want to be clear. <laughs> I, I think that the Sixers were going to lose this game regardless. But th- to just put yourself behind the eight ball like that, like to just set a bunch of minutes on fire. I agree. It's it's malpractice. It's like, what are you trying to prove? Like, yeah, like I, and I, I want to get into some of the ways that like the problem goes deeper than Deandre, but just to, you know, to the point that you made about the possibly fictitious claim that like some players came to him and said they wanted Deandre there. I like be... that you added possibly fictitious. I, I wasn't even saying he was lying about it. I just thought you didn't have to mention it. But I I'm not like... saying it either. I'm just saying I, it's possible. I didn't hear I like the conversation. That. I no. don't know. I like that. But the point is, as a coach, I feel like you need to recognize, like, the idea that he said they wanted a big body, they wanted a role man. And you know how the Heat defend pick and rolls. They switch them. Like, they're going to switch Bam onto Harden, they're going to switch him onto Maxi. They don't care. And there are still, you can slip and you can still find some role opportunities against a defense that switches. But for the most part, 
a switching defense can kind of take that north south element out of the pick and roll game and if you switch properly and you get underneath the roll man when you're switching you're sort of taking that away and i don't know if like did deandre score out of the pick and roll in this game maybe once but like even even against a defense that was like say putting two on the ball or you know playing at the level of the screen some kind of coverage that would be conducive to a roller he's just not really that guy anymore like he's not uh, the dynamic athlete that he used to be he's not the finisher that he used to be and you know like he's never been any kind of like playmaker in space so it's like finish or nothing and the idea that he was going to give them that element offensively was like misguided from the start and doc river should have known that like i'm sorry him saying that it, the, the reason that it doesn't hold any water for me is like, okay, fine. Your players came to you and said, we want a roll man. What you should have said is like, DeAndre is not that guy. And that's not going to work against his Miami defense. What kind of did and what can and what will continue to work, I think, for Philly's offense against Miami is either like just attacking one-on-one and spacing the floor for the guys who can attack one-on-one, like Tyrese Maxey and and James Harden to a slightly lesser extent at this point, or small, small pick-and-roll where you're going after the weaker Miami defenders. Like, I I will say the Heat did a really good job of protecting Tyler Hero in this game, as I expected they would, because they've done it all season. We know what they do. Like, they're going to show and recover or they're going to switch and it's going to be a quick switch to blitz where the double team's coming immediately. Or they, you know, a couple of times they did the thing that they did with Duncan Robinson early in the season where it's like hedge and recover, but it's a pick and pop. So somebody is jetting up right away, either from the corner or from the baseline to take that shooter and hero's recovery is taking him like to the dunker spot. So he doesn't have to worry about getting back out to the shooter. Like they did a good job of protecting him, but like that's how the Sixers offense is going to function and how it's going to succeed it's not going to succeed with one five pick and roll because bam's going to be able to take care of the front end of that switch and without Embiid there nobody not deandre not paul reed not paul Millsap, none of none of the potential Embiid replacements is going to be able to do anything on the back end of that switch so like why bother inviting bam into the action that you know he's going to ruin for you why not just try and isolate him away from the play? Like, I understand why you, like, don't want to play Niang at the five for big minutes in this series. Like, Niang is not very good, and, like, that's a defensively challenged lineup. But I think the idea of, okay, this guy can maybe space Bam out, and then we can run these small, small pick-and-rolls, or we can, like, run isos for Maxi against players that he is faster than, and, like, that can be our offense. I think that makes more sense than trying to go to the well of like one five pick and roll that we know isn't going to work in the series. Yeah. I, the thing I think is interesting too, like earlier today, I don't know if you saw those doc comments and he was talking about how like without Embiid, you have to be like fearless and creative. And it's like, to me, this is the opposite of that, you know, just going with Deandre because it's what you're comfortable with or what all the players want to roll or like, that is the opposite of being creative and fearless. So it's just frustrating, man. Like 
I, I'm convinced that he he saw the last episode of Winning Time and saw the fictitious uh, player vote on the Spencer Haywood thing and thought, nah, I'm going to use that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it was the player's fault. But no, uh, another thing on, on a serious matter, on a basketball matter, James Harden, I, I mean, I don't know how many times we can have this conversation in the playoffs, but we talked when we were doing our series preview last week about how, uh, and I was saying like, yeah, he had that great game six clincher in Toronto, but that, you know, the sample size was growing of us seeing that he can't do that consistently anymore. And I think that the extra day off between games five and six actually probably helped him more than anyone in that series. And it showed he, he just can't do that consistently anymore. He especially can't do it against switching defenses. We've said all this that played out again. I think he had 16 points on 20 possessions, five dimes, but also five turnovers. Like was not able to create advantages often enough in this game. And without Joel Embiid, like they, the Sixers need 2019 James Harden. If Embiid's not going to be there to like prop them up in this series. And unfortunately it's 2022. And look, Tobias Harris was great. I continue to eat my words there. I came into this playoffs thing, you know, I, I, and I've always liked Tobias and I've always said like his, his shot creation and a shot making at that size is actually something that could be so important for the Sixers in the playoffs, especially. Um, and so in all honesty, like I, I'm happy to see that he is thriving and and getting the most out of that skill set in the playoffs now, but it's not enough, man. Like Tobias has been great. Maxi again has been hot and cold, mostly good in the playoffs, but he's a second year player that like should not have this pressure on him with or without him beating the lineup. It's like if James Harden was the James Harden of old, they would have a chance because he was that good. And he was able to prop up an offense, no matter what was going on around him. And he just can't physically do it consistently anymore. And without him beating the lineup, it's against this defense in particular, it's it's just more evidence. So I don't know, man. Like I, I agree with what you're saying. Obviously, yes, huge difference between game three and game four. But even if, even if he comes back game three and they're down two nothing, like, yeah, they're going back to Philly, but that's that's a really tough ask, man. Like to win four or five at that point against Miami. I, it's definitely a tough ask. I'm just saying. I think if it's if it's two right. nothing it's, going it's back more home, possible, of course, th- then they got a shot. I, I really do believe that. Like I I wouldn't pick them to win at that point, but you know I still think that they could you know they could level it up at home and turn it into a best of three. I I could see that happening. So I hope that he's able to make it back for game three. Course, I mean, yeah. obviously, I want him to make the the best decision for his health, his long term health, but. I think that would obviously make the series a lot more exciting and, uh, you know, introduce some stakes and some drama into it because as it is, it's just, you know, I, I mentioned this in my series preview. It's like we have seen the Sixers completely outdone in postseason series because of their inability to simply survive like the five to 10 minutes a game that Embiid would be on the bench. And now literally the whole apparatus is just made of non-Embiid minutes. So it's a massive uphill climb. And they're they're making it harder on themselves with, you know, Doc Rivers is making it harder on himself with the decision to play DeAndre Jordan when he shouldn't be playing. I thought, you know, a lot of the other stuff they did made sense and worked. Like the, their zone actually did discombobulate Miami and and take their offense out of rhythm for a while. Like they continue to do something that I think was smart. It was an adjustment they made in game six against the Raptors, which is just set those ball screens for Harden and Maxi like way up near half court and get those guys a runway going downhill. Like they, they did some things that worked 
not shooting six of 34 from three would be a really good start to give them a better chance to win. But uh, both teams missed a ton of good looks. Like, I, I don't know if I can remember a playoff game where I've seen so many bricked corner threes from both teams like I did in this game. Yeah, so the Sixers were 6 of 34, which is 18%, and the Heat were 9 for 36 at 25%. So definitely not a good shooting game. Pretty ugly game all around, but um, big shout out to Tyler Hero. Like, the, them protecting him on defense was so important because of what he means to their offense. And he was their saving grace at that end. Like so many janky possessions that he bailed out with his shot making. And then just, you know, I kind of thought the bread and butter for them, the one reliable thing they could go to was the hero bam pick and roll, which was just nails all game. And that's like getting into, you know, something I wanted to mention where it's like, look, DeAndre was really bad in this game, but I thought like one of the places where he actually didn't deserve all the slander he was getting was, like, I felt like most of the time he was doing what he was supposed to do or needed to do when he was guarding those pick and rolls. Like, either he'd be in drop and, like, you know what you're going to give up in drop. Like, Hero's going to shake loose and hit pull-up jumpers. And the Sixers guards weren't doing a particularly good job of fighting over top. Or what he started to do was come up higher in pick and roll to take away the Hero jumper. But then Bam is rolling into an empty side and like the low man help is non-existent and the Heat were smart about it because they were isolating Harden and making him the low man. And James Harden is a terrible low man defender. And I thought they they managed to pick on that weakness and they just, that was that was a killer, man. The, the hero Bam pick and roll. So hero is awesome. Bam was awesome. And obviously like for Bam, this just instantly became a series that went from him, you know, potentially being neutralized as a scorer or like, you know, maybe even as an offensive player entirely to, to one in which he can absolutely feast. And we saw yeah, that to one night, in which he looks like the best player on the court right now. Yeah. Um, so there's four game ones of the second round in the books. And uh, yeah, one thing I want to add, cause we, we didn't uh, mention it. Marcus smart is now questionable for game two with, Shoulder and thigh issues. I think uh, shoulder stinger, mm. even though it looked like it friggin' dislocated. They're saying I thought just, 100%. With yeah. The way that he was holding it, I thought it was a 100% yeah. a dislocated well, shoulder. They're either lying or it's just a stinger. Um, and then also a thigh contusion. So multiple ailments there from Marcus Smart. Questionable. Obviously a big... Uh, I mean, it would just suck if they, you know, they started the playoffs without one of their two Defensive Player of the Year candidates and, and they, they might have to play some of the second round without the defense player of the year. It would just suck. Yeah, I think they would be in real dire straits if he had to go out because what, who do they have to take his place? Like Peyton Pritchard's going to... Yeah. Uh, Marcus Smart's a really good and really smart offensive initiator. Yeah. You know, say what you will about the like the hot and cold shooting, the often cold shooting, the you know lack of like individual offensive juice, but as a guy who handles the ball and just as like a good smart offensive initiator he's good man and and yeah like he so much of their success this season came and even Tatum's success came down to them getting him more off the ball and getting him the ball and looks in different plate like that isn't there if he's having to initiate that was one of their problems earlier in the season yeah I think his offensive contributions are fairly underrated and Boston just really needs them in this matchup because uh, one game in, you know, they're already in mud. So let's leave that there. I will do our fan shout out this week. And 
uh, it's sort of a part two, an addendum to our shout out from last week because we got an email cash from uh, the fan that we shouted out on last episode who we knew only as Mastin3747, a commenter on the post that we put up on the score for the podcast episode that we did last week. And he wrote in to let us know his name is Andrew Mastin. He has never sought a shout out from us because he's not on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, but often thought he could get one because he has an interesting bio as an NBA fan. He's a lifelong Warriors fan, says he was a former season ticket holder during the run TMC era. So Andrew's dating himself a little bit with uh, with that throwback, but that's incredible. Uh, he lived in San Francisco for 20 years, he says, but he's now an expat living in Bangkok and has been since 2006. So uh, because he lacks fellow NBA fans to talk to in Bangkok, he thinks that our show is kind of like sitting in on a vicarious conversation. And uh, he has been begging for some Warriors conversation on this pod that we have been putting off. And he did say that he would remain a faithful listener, but I think we owed him basically the 30 minutes of Warriors Grizzlies chat that we started this episode with. So I hope that satisfied you, Andrew. We appreciate you sticking with us in spite of the the drought of Warriors content and conversation for the last few weeks. And we hope you appreciated this one. To all our listeners, we appreciate your patronage, your listenership, no matter how long you've been with us, whether this is your first episode or your 239th. And as always, a call out to all our listeners if you would like to get shouted on, shouted out on this show, give us a holler. You can hit me on Twitter at Joey underscore W. Cash at Joseph Cacharo. You can email us as Andrew did. Uh, I'm at joe.wolfon at thescore.com. Joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. And you can find Cash on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Tell us where you're listening from, how long you've been a listener what you like about the show, what you don't. And we will make sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. Cash, did I do that right? You did. I can't wait um, to get an email from 76ers coach 52. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure they'll tell us a lot about what they don't like about the show. Put us out of our misery here. let's, uh, Let's put a bow on this. We will be back later in the week with a little bit more of a sample size to reflect on. For now, we got four game ones in the books. We got another long-ass episode in the books. And we are calling it an extremely late Monday night. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.